Welcome to The Gold Exchange with Keith Wiener, where we untangle market and policy complexity using timeless economic principles. For show notes and archives, go to goldexchangepodcast.com. And now, on to today's episode. Hello again, and welcome to The Gold Exchange Podcast. I'm John Flaherty, and I'm here with Keith Wiener, founder and CEO of Monetary Metals. I'm also pleased to introduce our guest today, Dr. Adam Trexler, founder and president of Valorum. If you'll indulge me, Adam, I'd like to give our audience a brief bio on you. I would break Adam's career down into three main epics. He began in venture capital, helping early stage companies raise equity capital. We'll call epic two the academic leg of the race, where he was a professor and researcher for four years at the University of Exeter and Queen Mary University of London. Finally, Adam founded Valorum in 2012 and has provided the visionary leadership on this innovative and rapidly growing firm. Adam, you have the distinction of being our first uh, guest besides Keith on the Gold Exchange podcast, so we welcome you. Great to be here. Adam, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like you to take just a moment and introduce your company to our audience. Please tell a little bit about Valorum's mission, your signature product, and uh, kind of where you fit in the gold universe of companies. Thanks, John. Great to be here. So I founded Valorum in 2012 with a really radical invention that rather than casting coins or bars, we would deposit gold atom by atom and create a thin film of gold that would look like a conventional bill, but be a usable, spendable, precise denomination of gold in everyday quantities. So I have sitting right here on my desk, a one ounce gold coin issued by US Mint, and it's unaffordable and I can't get anybody to buy it off of me except for in a standard store. The reason for that is that very few people can authenticate it. So what our product, the Aurum does, that technology, Aurum technology, is we're able to create bills that have between $1.50 and $150 worth of gold incorporated into them. The gold is recoverable. And more importantly, it's recognized as a standard of value. Any person can authenticate it. It's extremely difficult to counterfeit. We have banknote level security features been built into it. We also have unique patented security features built into it. And all of these things come together to make physical held gold investment something that works in the 21st century. So apart from your exponential growth trend, I understand your sales have doubled in each of the last three years. I'd like to know what you're most excited about, Adam. Great question, John. And it's been a little bit more than double, but Double is a good place to start. I'm really excited by what I see as a long-term trend where more and more of the public is recognizing the need for precious metals investment, not just as something to have in a ticker, but as a physical monetary instrument that they should own. And I see that as inexorable process. And one that already has $2 trillion worth of physical bars and physical coins out in the marketplace. And I think it's only going to grow. Great. Before we begin, one more note about the Orum. As many of our listeners know, Monetary Metals issued the first gold bond in 87 years back in December. 
And because of the historical significance, we decided to print bondholder certificates, not on boring paper, but on physical gold. So we turned to Valorum to produce this for us, and the results were simply stunning. So Adam, thank you for your hand in helping to bring that to pass. Delighted to do it. Keith, you've been following Valorum for many years. Is there anything you'd like to add before we uh, get into our discussion today? Yeah, just to touch on something Adam said, what excited me about their product initially was, you know, if you want to go to, to the grocery store, a gold coin is just too, by far, too large a denomination. And so they have Orem units that are a tenth of a gram. I think you can do a hundredth of a gram now. I'm just remembering the initial one was a tenth of a gram, which is something like, what is it, six to eight dollars? About six dollars today. Yeah. Which is, you know, a not unreasonable size denomination. And, you know, as I think about the gold standard and, you know, obviously our focus is helping drive it by financing things, using gold to finance things. But in terms of circulating, you know, in the economy, people need convenient units. And, you know, the Orem provides a convenience that coins don't. And then there's just a very practical consideration. I've seen one gram things. You know, we have clients that at least gold from us that are, that are doing one gram things. And it's a sturdy, it's called a sturdy card. So picture a, a credit card sized piece of plastic. It's about that thick. And then there's a, a expanded clear plastic window in the middle of that plastic credit card thing. And then there's this little chip of gold <laughs> that flows in there and there's your gram. And then if you want to get into a tenth of a gram, you know, it would be a little speck of gold, hardly even a chip. So I think in terms of the pleasure of holding it, which is part of gold's appeal for 5,000 years, you kind of lose that when you're holding this credit card with a window. And, you know, there's all that, you know, all that packaging and everything else. So the Orem was just kind of cool from that perspective as well. Well, and I completely agree, Keith. And I think from my point of view, the ability to have even a thousandth of an ounce bill that can have beautiful art on it, that can have all of the kind of guillotine effects and complex crystallizations that can have a clear sign of atomically deposited metal, all of those features give people confidence. But the most fascinating thing is even people who know something about investing and even precious metals. Many of them have never held gold. Many of them don't own it themselves, and it seems relatively foreign. We're at the tip of the iceberg in terms of mainstream gold investment in the United States. And so one of my things is I want more and more people to own gold, and maybe they're not ready to buy a $1,900 coin. And certainly it's not within everybody's means to be tucking away a $1,900 coin on every paycheck. But I give people a thousandth of an ounce gold bill all the time. I say, hey, oh, you don't have gold here? Now you do. And that's really compelling to people. And the idea that they could spend it, the idea that they can trust what it is, that it's not a copper clad or tungsten clad coin coming out of China is really compelling to people. And when they understand that it has intrinsic value, they get very, very excited. You know, whenever I'm in a discussion with anybody, I'd love to ask them, have you ever held an actual piece of solid gold. And a lot of people say, no, they haven't. And then if I have one, I'd love to hand them one just to kind of see their reaction. For those who do, the conversation takes a different tenor because they sort of get it, that there's a human attraction to gold. And it's been that way for thousands of years. I mean, it was in Egypt, thousands of years BC, that it was precious and had religious significance and related to the sun and all those things. And you see why gold endures 
as a universal money. And if they haven't held it, there's certain things they don't get about it. And uh, it's like the psychology aspect of it is interesting, too. It certainly is. And I'm very interested in that universal effect as well. And the amazing thing to me about Gold Keith is that if you're a factory worker in China, or you're a farmer in India, or an IT worker in India, for that matter, or if you're a coffee grower in Kenya, you can buy gold and its value is basically determined by a couple of international markets that are provide a clear pricing indication and a value for that element in a way that's very difficult for people to have access to otherwise. So that international standard that you can take that gold anywhere, but also that you can hold it in your hand and you have something of value across the world is very unusual. And to me, that's one of the qualities that makes it a unique monetary instrument. That's right. If there's a local surplus in one place and a local deficit in another, it's one plane trip away and the market can even out until the gold price is consistent everywhere. That's not true for sand or bricks or even, you know, steel, wheat, oil. All of these things have very significant transportation challenges and costs. And so you have a very different market for Brent crude versus West Texas crude, where the gold market is you know, basically one price, unless some country like India says 10% import duty or something. You know, certain countries have kind of messed with it a bit by right, adding friction to it. But other than that, it's a, the same price everywhere and universally recognized everywhere. You know, if you're dealing with a coffee grow in Kenya, does he understand your currency? Now, they understand dollars, of course, but other currencies, they may not. Gold, everybody smiles. I get it. <laughs> they do. And one of the components of gold that makes it so compelling as that kind of instrument is the density of its value. I mean, if you can imagine trying to stockpile Brent crude in your garage to uh, <laughs> you know, savings that rather unattractive. But on a couple of occasions, I've been in the strange situation of needing to do a run to a vault and carrying enough gold in my jacket pocket to buy a house. And that kind of density of value, while it's still a physical commodity, is just extraordinary and almost unique. Let's put this in perspective for the listeners. So crude oil is what, $70 a barrel roughly? Right, today. Yep. So if you wanted to pay somebody $1,000 worth of oil, you're into, what is that, 15 barrels? Right. And a, a barrel of oil is, was it 50 gallons? So you're looking at something like 1,500 gallons, like swimming pool-sized amount of crude oil, which, by the way, is toxic. It grades when exposed to oxygen or sunlight. And that's for $1,000. That's not even that big a transaction. And you'd need a swimming pool that was you know, sealed off from oxygen and sunlight. So I always joke with people and I'd say, okay, imagine the truck is going to be at your house in five minutes and the guy's going to hop out of the truck and, sir, where would you like your oil? And you realize the impracticality of anybody trying to deal in oil other than the specialty industry that has the tanks and the safety equipment and the anti-explosion devices. <laughs> all the rest of that, whereas $1,000 worth of gold is half an ounce. Yeah, so the beauty of Orem is that you could count out five or 10 Orem bills, depending on the specific weight, and pay precisely 
Of course, you could do that with a liquid oil, but I'd hate to be there with my measuring cups dishing you the precise amount of oil. So that divisibility and that density of value, frankly, that safety is really attractive. And the other thing I think about is a lot of people are doing innovative things, both with gold and with other commodities, in terms of putting those onto a distributed ledger and then having custodial storage somewhere else. I think those are really interesting means of making trade have less friction. However, the really interesting thing to me about gold is that you can take that physical delivery. You can hold it in your hand, and that provides the final certainty in terms of proof and ability to receive exactly what you need and exactly what you're entitled to. You know, there's a really important economic point about that. But unfortunately, economists have really either been kind of dismissive and a little pejorative or just kind of done some hand-waving, and they call it hoarding. And then as soon as you say that word, everyone rolls their eyes and shakes their head and, you know, the conversation moves on. But it's really important economically that there be a means of final payment. And since we're physical beings that live in a physical world, final payment means what final payment means you're taking delivery of something physical. Right. And not everybody needs that and not every transaction and not every day. In fact, most of the people most of the time don't demand that and don't need it. And of course, observers of monetary systems have, you know, have observed that when the currency is redeemable, then that tends to keep the bankers honest. And then when you declare it to be irredeemable, as Roosevelt did in the United States in 1933, and then worldwide, Nixon was the last nail in the coffin, then that gives them license to be perhaps less forthright in how they deal, because when there's a redemption mechanism, every banker every day is faced with, okay, if I think I can get away with something and everybody finds out, they're just going to withdraw all their gold and now I'm going to be bankrupt. And gold versus any other commodity just serves that so well. And I just want to underscore for everybody listening to this, when Adam said he can carry in his jacket pocket enough value to pay for a house. Now, maybe not with the current boom in housing prices. They've gone up so much. Maybe that's not true anymore. But Two jacket pockets. <laughs> you know, a modern large form factor iPhone would be something like two kilos if that was made out of solid gold. Two kilos is, what is that, about five pounds? 4.4 pounds, and that would be $120,000 melt today. Right. $120,000 is four pounds. I mean, it really, no joke, you really could put that in your jacket pocket. And then if you're wearing jeans, you could put several more kilos in each of your two front pockets. I mean, yeah, it's completely, and if you had a backpack, you could you could have a million dollars worth of value easily. There's no other commodity that comes close to that, with the exception of a few other rare metals, but they don't have the recognizability. I ran an experiment for myself personally, this is years and years ago. I was traveling to London relatively frequently. I was just fascinated with the currency exchange in uh, the airports and also on the high streets there and seeing the bid-ask spread, you know, if you wanted to trade your dollars for pounds, pounds for dollars, what was that spread? And could you walk into a coin shop here in Main Street and buy a gold eagle and then go over there and sell it for pounds at a tighter spread? Hmm. And uh, the answer is yes, if you're comparing to the guys in the airport. No, if you're comparing to the best price you can get on a high street. So the eagle just had slightly wider spread. But now if this was Kenya and you're talking about the, 
what do they have there? I want to say they have a shilling, the currency there. The spreads would obviously be much wider against the dollar versus the pound. The pound is uh, one of the big currencies in the dollar index, very liquid currency. The other currencies, I think you'd probably have a tighter spread uh, by bringing gold coin over versus by bringing stack with dollar bills. So they're very practical considerations, friction and trade, not just, okay, I'm going to buy this because I think it's going to be $60,000 by tomorrow morning. I'm delighted you bring up the notion of spread, Keith. And I think that many people who consider themselves seasoned gold investors have gotten too fixated on melt and pay too little attention to spread. And here's what I mean by that is a lot of times gold bullion today is priced in terms of the melt value or the underlying value of the gold and some premium on top of that. And there's fascinating pricing things that have happened with this. But one of them is that, you know, everybody has said, well, I want to get the cheapest gold possible, which tends to be commodity bar. The problem is that bar doesn't necessarily command the same premium on the other end. And in general, people will tend to melt it down. So what you have then is a close value to melt, but not necessarily a good spread. And from Valorum's point of view, and I think this is common sense, what we should be looking for in the gold market is something that is easily recognized, is easily authenticated, it will have, there will be an associated cost to that utility. We think that Orem is one of the best of those products, but we look for tight spreads between the buy and the sell. And, and we're very interested in creating, and I think we're at, at its infancy, but we're very interested in creating a tight buy-sell spread rather than just being focused on this race to the bottom melt price. We want to get the best products out there that command a premium and maintain a premium because we think that that will create the most efficient gold market where people will easily authenticate and pay a narrow spread. And so that's, I think, the direction that the gold market will go in. But it does require a mental shift from buying the cheapest bar you can possibly buy to buying recognized gold forms. Like are you probably looking at a Liberty gold coin from the US Mint, a maple leaf, for those kind of ounce denominations. And then we think as you get into the kind of 20th of an ounce size forum, and I think that that will become the standard for gold ownership and investment because it naturally has less friction. Yeah, I was going to say at the um, institutional level and for high net worth investors that are keeping depository accounts, the kilo bar or the 100 ounce bar has the tight of spreads, provided you don't take it out. As soon as you take it home, it loses the integrity of its chain of custody. And there's a good chance that if you try to bring it back, they're not going to take it back. So they'll just say, well, we'll melt it and we'll let you know what it's worth after it's melted. Of course, professional depositories do have x-ray guns and they have electrical and acoustic instruments to try to figure out if it's a tungsten core and just wrapped in gold or whatever. But if you're trying to pass that bar to anybody on the street, or even a relatively sophisticated retailer probably never have the equipment to figure out if that bar is fake or not. I think most people probably wouldn't really know if the bar was lead painted in gold. A more sophisticated person would because lead is a lot lighter than gold for the same bulk. So for taking things out of the system and having it in your hands and interacting with other people who aren't industry specialists, then you need something that's 
recognizable and, and not easy to counterfeit. And that should be rewarded with the tighter spread. One of the things that excites me about where we're at market-wise is we're, in, we're kind of in a place where Monetary Metals is doing this in our area. And you mentioned you know spreads on your product. We're kind of conducting experiments in monetary science using the world as our laboratory. That is so cool. I don't know how many listeners think that's cool or not. Maybe everyone's going to say, Keith, you just say, Keith, shut up. But um, <laughs> I think it's cool, Keith. It's like there's certain knowledge that you know has been lost and then other things that are just being developed new for the first time. And we have a chance to test it and prove the hypothesis that this works this way or this doesn't work this way or whatever. It's just, just super cool. Well, and I think one of the interesting things here is you see this with a $100 bill. So it was pretty easy to spend a $100 bill for quite a while. And then other governments, I think North Korea began counterfeiting American US $100 bills, and suddenly they became harder to spend than other US bills, and they had to update the security. And it seems to me that's roughly on a, you know, seven to 10 year cycle. But the form of gold, that good delivery bar that only works in custody, that's been around for hundreds of years, essentially. And the coin as a monetary form is obviously thousands of years old. I have Greek coins. goes back to the kingdom of Lydia. Right. Which I think around 600 BC is the first gold coin. Mm -hmm. So what do we do? You know, and people have been trying to, firms have been trying to make coins more difficult to counterfeit. But to me, there's this wonderful proliferation of paper-like polymer-based anti-counterfeiting features. And we are bringing that together with gold to make something that's truly authenticatable in the 21st century in physical delivery. And to me, that just makes more sense than the coin form for any of those small denominations. Adam, I believe you mentioned earlier, but there are at least three countries that you've been involved with in helping them to issue your Orem product as legal tender. Is that right? That's right. And uh, announcements of more coming. Awesome. Yeah. So we also see a trend here in the States of several states taking steps to eliminate taxes on gold to free it up for more circulation, but perhaps. I'm sure you gentlemen have a few thoughts on these trends and what role they might play in a path back to the gold standard. Yeah, let me jump in on this first, because I've been involved at the state level in testifying and helping pass these things successfully in Arizona, not so successfully in Texas. Surprisingly, the state that created a Texas state depository for gold did not see fit to pass a bill that recognized gold and silver as legal tender. Although the tax issue is moot in Texas because they don't have a tax, they don't have an income tax anyway, and there's no sales tax on gold there. I think there's a state-by-state movement. It's maybe not as rapidly developing as, say, the marijuana movement, but I think there's now, what, a dozen states that have done something recently to either recognize gold in a more formal way or at least repeal the taxes. I'd imagine if that continues, that could go to Washington and... um Politicians in Washington are, if nothing else, sensitive to the mood of the people and eager to get on the right side of every trend and get the photo op. So if enough states do it, then Washington may pass something to repeal the capital gains tax on it. One of the bizarre things, too, and I researched this in my testimony, there's not really a lot of revenue raised by taxing gold, like capital gains on gold. You know, in Texas, I, this is going back some years, 
No, not tax. What state was it? It was like $3 million for the whole year was the state's tax revenue on the capital gains on gold. I mean, it was nothing. And I extrapolated that to Arizona based on the population of Arizona. I don't remember what state it was now. And like in Arizona, it would have been a few hundred thousand dollars of revenue to the state for the whole year. And I'm like, guys, there's no there. They're all you're doing is preventing transactions. You're just stopping people from doing business. You're not even arguably the benefit to the state of getting taxes. You're not even getting that. Just let it go. And it took five years. It was vetoed by a Democrat governor once and two Republican governors, one of them twice. And then finally, the will of the people was heard. So that's my uh, observation on this movement. Yeah, I think from a conceptual level, gold is obviously not money in the same way that it is not declared something that must be compelled to be accepted. You know, that a government, the United States government doesn't see fit to demand that I can pay Keith for my coffee in gold. Let me just interject if I may. <laughs> sure. In thousands of years of history, nobody has ever had to be forced to accept gold. It's the debtor who might want to choose to pay something of lesser quality and then has to go to court and be told, no, 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 you've got to settle your, your debt as agreed in gold. It's a very lopsided, asymmetrical uh, situation. Agreed. But I think the point I was, a complimentary point is that most, if not all, central banks hold gold for its historical long-term value because it has no default or political risk, because of its liquidity, because of its divisibility for their purposes. This is a monetary instrument, and to treat it as just a commodity is really quite strange. I mean, the U.S. Mint is issuing gold bullion based on its gold value, and it's legal tender. It's legal tender with a small face value. This is clearly this is clearly a monetary instrument. Is it you can argue that it's not the money of the land, it's not the USD, it's not the greenback, but why there should be capital gains on it, I, I see as illogical. And to call it anything but a, a monetary tool also seems strange to me. I may be alone in the world in taking this position, but I'll I'll happily die on this hill. And I make a distinction between money versus medium of exchange. And I would say that gold is money. It's still behaving as money, but it's not the medium of exchange. If you try to walk into a grocery store today or a car dealership where the transaction size is suited, you can't buy a car and count out, you know, 20 gold eagles. It's not a medium of exchange, but it is universally recognized, universally accepted. I think most of them, and, and Titus Bidisk spread of any commodity, in so many ways it doesn't behave like any other commodity. The most interesting of which, as we continue to accumulate it, after thousands and thousands of years of accumulating it, there is no such thing as a glut in gold. In any normal commodity, if you accumulate a certain amount, there's a glut, and then the price crashes and nobody produces anymore because they can't make money at producing it. And then all the consumers are incentivized to consume it more, and the glut is worked off, and eventually you know, the market gets back to normal. In the case of gold, there is no such thing as a glut. And that's exactly what you'd expect money to be. There's not a particular limit on how much money people want to hold. And if more gold is pulled out of the ground and therefore more money comes into the market, there's always a bid for money. And the bid for money is greater than the cost of mining most of the time. There's an interesting arbitrage there, but most of the time that's true. And so it, it absolutely behaves as money, but not as medium of exchange. And I make that distinction 
most people define money as the medium of exchange. And so and clearly by that definition, gold, gold isn't money. But, but yet there's a need for understanding the concept that trades and works in some way different from all of the commodities. And what is that way? And that's obviously what we've been talking about on this uh, session. Two points about that, Keith, and this is really some of the center of the things that fascinate me about money in general. People are, I would say the overall investment market has been obsessed with media of exchange. And I think there's been amazing technological innovation in media of exchange. I would say a lot of Bitcoin and, and other cryptocurrencies. Is- no, he's not going there. No, 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 no. Oh, sorry. <laughs> or at least it hopes to be. But I would put Visa and MasterCard. These are all Venmo. These are all media to make exchange have less friction. What typically has been neglected in the last 30 or 40 years is store of value, particularly in the United States, because the greenback has been such a standard for value storage. However, internationally, gold has done nothing but appreciate as a store of value. And Americans are rather late to the party with this. But how do you store value with density, with security, with certainty? And the dollar has had something to say about that. The euro has been that. And also gold. And that's why there's $2 trillion, I mentioned earlier, of physical gold in investment forms. And it's largely as that store of value that will last, frankly, forever. There's gold that has been melted down from ancient Lydia that's circulating now in the form of bars or coins. It doesn't go anywhere. It's been here for thousands of years, and we continue to increase it. the pool of it. A third of the gold that is circulating today is probably ancient. Yeah, just, just recirculating. Certainly from 19th century back. So that pool of gold isn't going anywhere, and we continue to need more. I was just going to make a, an ironic observation about the dollar store value. One of the Federal Reserve's legal mandates you know, enacted in law is to maintain the purchasing power of the dollar. And so the Fed states that it's you know trying to, what they, it's price stability is how they talk about it on their website. And price stability is defined as 2% debasement in perpetuity. And I always like to say George Orwell would, I don't know if he'd be smiling or rolling over in his grave, but man, that's a perfect example of Orwellian doublethink right there. But they're trying to debase it on purpose because all the leading economists, all the king's horses and all the king's men and all the king's, you know, horses, what, agree that you create jobs and prosperity and exports and GDP by debasing the store of value on purpose. And like burning down a little bit of your house every year, but only a little bit, it's only 2%. We call that house stability. And I always like to just touch on that point and remind people that this is... Gold doesn't have that problem, obviously. Well, and that that ability to hold value as it is, and I think people have gotten oversold on the speculative potential of gold, which always could be there, but at the cost of a real disaster for the national currency you're thinking in. You know, that speculative capacity is there, but the real value of gold to me is to buy something that I know that my children, when they're adults, will be able to use to buy something that 20 years from now, when I hope to retire, will be similarly valued. To be able to take the very long view and prepare for our fundamental time passing 
this is a basic problem of humanity. And gold has been playing that role. And to say it's anything but that or to deny that need is almost perverse to me. So we just have this deep need for planning across decades, if not centuries. And that's what lets humans build great things and not to speak of individual careers, individual life paths. And when we have monetary instruments that respect that process, it's intimately linked to not chasing the next quarter, but how do we build things of value and store value over a long period? And I think that's where gold really shines. So you're saying if someone's trying to build a multi-generational family trust, they wouldn't put a stack of $100 bills in that trust and you know, just assume that for their grandkids, that would be fine, that there might be issues with that? I might worry for them. <laughs> At 2% a year, that's pretty scary to me. Yeah. yeah that's right. Well, gentlemen, I think that's all the time we have today. I think we've been consistent with our podcast promise to discuss timeless principles, and we've done that today. Thanks again to Adam for being our special guest and for both of you taking the time to share your thoughtful insights on these important topics. And to our audience, thank you for joining us on The Gold Exchange. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Go to goldexchangepodcast.com to learn how you can earn a yield on gold paid in gold.